Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Thrusting space science into the audio dimension, this is Naked Astronomy. When did dark energy become the dominant force in the universe? In this month's Naked Astronomy, we look back at the history of our expanding universe to find out when gravity lost its grip. One of the key things is that we're looking at that expansion at a time when this dark energy, this dominant component, became important. So we're looking at a redshift of 0.57, which is about when this dark energy started to dominate about when the universe started to accelerate. And that's a key time to try and understand the universe. We'll also be examining the global trade in meteorites to explore the tension between scientists and collectors and answering a bumper crop of your questions. I'm Ben Valsler and this is Naked Astronomy. Supported by the STFC, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. First, I'm joined by Carolyn Crawford, Andrew Ponson and Dominic Ford for a look at this month's space science news. Well, this is a paper in the monthly notices of the RAS which shed some light on how galaxies evolve. Now, the galaxies that we see in the night sky fall broadly into various categories. The most obvious visual groupings are that some galaxies have spiral structure, like our own galaxy, and others have elliptical structure with with no arms in that elliptical structure. Now, there are also differences in the physical makeup of galaxies. Some have lots of gas, which they seem to be actively forming into stars, and others seem to be more or less gas-free. And that leads to the question of whether these are fundamentally different populations of galaxies that form as spirals or ellipses, or whether they're different evolutionary states and whether, for example, spiral galaxies evolve into elliptical galaxies. Now, there's a fairly firm consensus that these are evolutionary states. We see examples of merging spiral galaxies that we think will form into elliptical systems. But that leads to the question of what happens to the gas because spiral systems tend to be the systems which are actively forming stars out of gas while the elliptical systems tend to be relatively gas free. Now although we see a lot of merging systems we don't see many that seem to be in the process of flushing their gas out and so we know much less about how that process happens. In fact I think there are about five examples that we've seen of galaxies that seem to be in the process of flushing their gas out as we observe them. Now, Ananda Hota, writing in the monthly notices of the RAS, presents images of one of these five galaxies, NGC 3801, at many different wavelengths of light. 
to try and understand exactly what's happening in this galaxy. And for a start, he sees that many of the stars in this galaxy formed only a few hundred million years ago. So that suggests very recently this galaxy was still forming stars. But today there's only very little star formation in the galaxy, and that is only in the outskirts of the galaxy. Now if you look towards the centre, you see evidence of lots of recent supernova explosions, which look like they've been blowing the gas out of the centre of the galaxy. And you also see there's an active nucleus that seems to have turned on. So gas is now falling in onto that central black hole, forming jets, and those jets are flushing the gas out of the centre of this galaxy. So the idea here is that already the star formation has turned off in the centre of this galaxy due to supernova explosions and the active nucleus, but it hasn't yet reached the outskirts of this galaxy, which will probably turn off in about another 100 million years' time. So he's dubbed this the cosmic leaf blower. It seems to have turned on, flushed the gas out of the centre of the galaxy, but not yet quite turned off the star formation in the outskirts. Wouldn't the presence of lots of gas being buffeted and pushed together by the forces of all these supernova, wouldn't that actually give you an area that's fertile for more star formation rather than less? It certainly can happen that supernova explosions can trigger other nearby star-forming regions to, to form into stars. That's called sequential star formation. But if you've got too many of these explosions, you just flush the gas completely out of the galaxy into intergalactic space. Thank you, Dominic. Carolyn, what have you seen for us this month? Well, I'm coming much closer to home and going to talk about a nearby star. Uh, it's a very well-known one. It's one of the brightest ones in our sky. That's Fummelholt. And it's 25 light years away. And it's a very young star. It's only a fraction of the sun's age. And it's about twice as massive as the sun. It's surrounded by an immense debris disk that's sort of over 20 billion miles across from one side to the other. And that was discovered in the 1980s because it actually radiates infrared emission. And subsequent observations of the Hubble Space Telescope revealed that there could be a planet orbiting just inside the debris disk because it has a very sharp inner edge to it, which suggests that there's something that's kind of shepherding and kind of guiding the particles and just keeping the neat edge of the ring. In fact, whether that planet is there or not has been recently a subject of contention and is unresolved, though I will say very recent observations with the new radio observatory ALMA suggest not just that that large planet is there, but there could be a further one outside the debris disk, which is also shepherding the outer part of the ring. However, the result I'm picking up on is the actual contents of the disk and where those came from. And this comes from new Herschel Space Observatory Observation. So this is done in the infrared by Bram Acker and colleagues at Leuven University. And they're actually looking at the, the nature of the dust because the way that it both emits and scatters light suggests that the grains in the dust disk are both smaller than previously thought. So these are perhaps only a few millionths of a metre across, but actually aggregated together in sort of quite large fluffy particles. And the properties of this dust is very similar to what is liberated from comets in our own solar system. So not from asteroids, but from comets. And so they're suggesting that this huge debris disk is created from collisions of comets. And it's a very interesting idea, not least because you have to have an awful lot of these collisions going on. These dust particles, these aggregates of dust particles, would be very light and fluffy 
easily pushed right out by the radiation pressure of the star. So to maintain this disk has to be continually replenished by lots of cometary collisions, you know, maybe a few, a couple of thousand in a day even, which suggests that this whole debris disk is like an early version of, say, our Kuiper belt in our solar system, a huge population of comets all crashing into each other and liberating these particles continually. So... Are there other similar disks that we can look at elsewhere to try and do some comparisons and work out if it really is likely to become something like our own Kuiper or, in fact, to give us more of an idea of what it really is made of? There are several disk systems around nearby stars that we have resolved, usually from scattered light from the disk or, again, the thermal infrared emission. This one's unusual in that it's actually tilted towards us so we get a good view of the whole ring. There are a lot of further edge-on systems which have been studied, say, with the Hubble Space Telescope. And those are much more the interest of actually looking for condensations within the disk and finding protoplanets forming within that disk. This system around Fummerholt seems to be at a slightly different stage where maybe some of the planets have already formed and what's going on within that debris disk is showing us a different aspect of the solar system forming around the star. And what does it tell us about formation of comets and and the movement and action of comets elsewhere if it is actually made up mainly of of cometary dust instead of planetary or pre-planetary dust? I think it's telling us something about those very early stages of planetary system formation. So when the comets and material have been flung out from the centre of the, the planetary system, it's kind of giving us that that's maybe happening a few hundred million years after the star was formed. And it's just giving us just that little snapshot in time for when lots of dynamic things are happening within the equivalent of the Kuiper belt around our system. Thank you, Carolyn. Andrew, finally, what do you have for us this month? Well, I spotted a quiet announcement by NASA that their Kepler spacecraft has had its mission lifetime extended through to 2016. It was originally going to be uh, decommissioned at the end of this year. Now, just to remind you, Kepler is this spacecraft that um, has a telescope on it staring at the same stars continuously and looking for signs of planets around those stars. And it's been immensely successful, almost to the point where announcing new discoveries of new planets is getting boring. The the latest catalogue was released at the end of February and has more than 2,000 possible planet detections. Now, those are just possible planet detections until other telescopes go and follow it up and check that there really is a planet there we don't know for certain but so far based on follow-ups that have been achieved we we are pretty confident that more than 90 percent of those candidates will turn out to be real planets so we're absolutely inundated with, with planets now now the point is that one of the original design goals of kepler was to find Earth-like planets and get some handle on how many Earth-like planets there are out there. But those Earth-like planets have two characteristics that make that tricky. First of all, they have long orbital periods, something like 365 days. You have to wait that long before you see the signal again, because the signal that you're looking for is the, the planet coming in front of the star. That can only happen once every 365 days. And the other characteristic uh, of our Earth that we're looking to match is that it's something that's quite small, which makes it quite hard to detect. So you want to see it come in front of the star several times to be sure that you've actually seen something, and that means you have to wait for several years. 
So originally, this mission was going to end at the end of 2012. Um, that would have been about three and a half years after it launched. And you might think that that would be enough to get a, f a few times for one of these Earth-like planets to come round. The trouble has been that the stars themselves have more intrinsic variability in their light than was originally expected. So that's an interesting discovery about stars, in fact, that's just sort of come on the back of this. So the stars themselves are bubbling away, and that makes it harder to tell whether a little uh, blob that you've seen in the, the amount of light coming from these stars is genuinely because of a small planet like the Earth. And so for that reason, the science case for extending the, the mission is, is pretty compelling because we're going to need more transits to see something like the Earth, and we still want to do that. It wasn't automatic, though, because although Kepler is there, it's sitting in space, um, it, it still costs money to have people on the ground analysing the data, and the uh, instruments do degrade over time. So uh, they, this had to be looked at carefully, but uh, NASA came to the conclusion that it was worth extending the mission, so it will now go on through into 2016. One thing that I've always wondered with looking at the transits where we are just looking at a dip in the light what is it that causes the stars to be variable without a planet well there are natural processes that go on within stars that cause them to, to vary the amount of light coming out things like uh, sunspots or just the fact that the whole star can be wobbling about and, and varying in size can lead to signals that can be confused with the transit of a planet and on the topic of exoplanets, Andy Masters wrote in to ask if we could see the light from the night side of a transiting exoplanet, could we use that to look for evidence of life? Well, as Andrew says, we certainly know of a lot of these planets now. I checked on the internet this morning and the tally seems to be 763 confirmed exoplanets as of this morning. And as Andrew says, Kepler has got about 2,000 more candidates where it just needs to see one or two more passes of those planets in front of their parent stars before they can be confirmed. But in all of these cases, we're only seeing the indirect influence of these planets on other objects around them. Either, as in the case of Kepler, the planet is passing in front of its parent star and causing a dip in the brightness of that star, or we're seeing the gravitational influence of that planet on its parent star. Now, what we would really love to be able to do would be to see the light actually from that planet, because then we could take a spectrum and we could find out the composition of those planets, we could find out whether they have atmospheres, and we could start to ask questions like how habitable they might be, whether they've got oxygen and water and the things we think you need for life. The problem with seeing the light from these planets is that their distances from their host stars is absolutely tiny compared to the distances of the host stars from us. So when we look at them on the sky, they're very close on the sky to stars which are very much brighter than the planets. So if you were to take a Hubble Space Telescope image of one of these systems, the star and the planet would be about one pixel apart in that image, but the star would be a billion times brighter, so it would be completely lost in the glare of its parent star. So I was trying to work out an analogy for this and the best I could come up with, if you've got a lighthouse and you've got a candle which is 20 centimetres away from that lighthouse and you look at that with the International Space Station, the candle is actually 100 times brighter than the planet would be that you were trying to make out 
next to that lighthouse. So people have worked out how you could try and see this light. And there have been two proposed missions, one by ESA and one by NASA. And you would need to fly about six telescopes similar in size to the Hubble Space Telescope in a constellation about 100 metres apart. And you would need to bring all of their light to a common focus to form an image. The problem with that is that it's incredibly expensive. And so both of those missions, Darwin and the Terrestrial Planet Finder, it was concluded in 2007, were basically too expensive to fly. Now, I hope at some point those missions will fly because I think this will be a tremendous step forward towards knowing whether there are other habitable planets out there. But I think probably, to be honest, it's going to be 20 years at least before they would actually make it into space. Andy suggests that we could be looking for specific signatures, like, for example, the light from sodium lights. So if there's lots and lots of roads and they use the same technology that we use, there would be a a spike in the particular signature of sodium. Would that just be lost in the noise of the planet? Is it really that insignificant? The problem is stars also have sodium in their atmospheres. And as I say, they're about a billion times brighter. So it would just be lost in the noise. And of course, as with all astronomical observations, we're we're looking at a certain period of time, depending on how far away these things are. And that brings me to this question from Robin Freeston, who asks how long Earth has actually been habitable. Carolyn, what do you think? Well, I guess it really depends what you mean by habitable and uh, by what it might have been habitable. I mean, if you think about it, the Earth formed about four and a half billion years ago, and an awful lot has had to happen to that Earth to, to render it habitable. Because the very early Earth that would have formed from the solar nebula would have been molten, incredibly hot, undergoing intense volcanism. And there wouldn't have been any oceans, no liquid water, until you have this heavy bombardment phase of our early solar system where we think comets delivered water, delivered the oceans to the Earth. That happened about 4 billion years ago and finished about 3.8 billion years ago. And then you've got to wait till the Earth has cooled sufficiently to hang on to that water and then we start to develop oceans, which is where we think life began. So you could say in terms of single-celled life and even sort of multi-celled life, you're looking at, say, well, for the single-celled about 3.8 billion years ago, multi-celled life about a billion years ago. But the Earth still strictly I wouldn't describe as habitable at that stage because you've got an atmosphere, the primordial atmosphere is still incredibly toxic. You need the oxygen in the atmosphere And that only begins to be addressed once you've got oxygen-producing life forms such as the early stromatolites, for example. And so it takes a long while to produce the kind of atmosphere, the kind of oceans, the kind of Earth we've got today. And so my best guess is that we would only begin to recognise the Earth as habitable about 500 million years ago. And it's at about that point you begin to get the ancestors of today's insects, today's animals mammals turning up perhaps 200 million years ago and primates only about 65 million years ago. So it's only relatively recently within the Earth's history that I would describe it as habitable. It seems something of a contradiction that in order to be somewhere where life could develop we needed this incredibly destructive heavy bombardment just to provide the water. Yes, well, the provision of water is a crucial stage about the the formation of life and there is still debate about whether about whether the comets delivered this water and where the comets would have come from in the primordial solar system as well. It's still not 
completely understood or proven that this was the case. Carolyn Crawford. We'll have more of your questions later on, but if you have a question to put to the team, email astronomy at thenakedscientists.com or tweet at Naked Scientists. The universe is expanding at an accelerating rate, and the driving force is the mysterious dark energy. But this hasn't always been the case. Earlier in the universe's history, gravity dominated, holding all the matter together. Using data from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey 3, an international team of researchers looked at the distribution of galaxies for evidence of clumping. When the universe was very young, it was almost like a liquid, and acoustic or pressure waves established clumps in matter. This wave structure then became frozen as the universe aged, and since then the expansion of the universe has stretched out the waves. Now, by looking at the distance between clumps of galaxies throughout the universe's history, we can map out the expansion of the universe, including pinning down the time when dark energy first came to dominance. To find out more, I spoke to Will Percival and Rita Tejero from the University of Portsmouth. Roughly 15 years ago, it was announced that the universe is accelerating. Since when, a lot of cosmology has been trying to understand this acceleration in a lot more detail. That was what the, this project was actually designed to try and do. So it's a very big question. How do you go about answering it? As it turns out, there are, there are a number of ways. And one of the things we're trying to do is just get more observational evidence of exactly how the universe is accelerating. We're doing that in two key ways. One is to get more information about the um, the actual expansion rate of the universe and the acceleration itself, so how much um, faster things are moving apart uh, than they were in the past. The other tack that we can take, if you like, is to um, look at structure formation within the universe. So uh, galaxies are not distributed randomly in the universe. They clump together in structures, uh, and these structures are growing. And the rate at which it grows is related to the uh, accelerated expansion of the whole universe. Because you can imagine that if the universe is accelerating a great deal, then it actually um, stops the structure forming. Uh, what's really neat is that actually by combining these two things, combining measurements of the accelerated expansion and structure growth within it, is a really good way of telling apart some of the key models that we have for the accelerated expansion of the universe. And what's the technique you're actually using to, to measure these distances and the change in distances over time? Okay, so the technique is called barren acoustic oscillations. Uh, what these are is these are the, the result of sound waves in the early universe. Um, basically, these sound waves uh, or pressure waves can actually move material around in the early universe. And they set up a particular distance, which was the distance these waves could get to. So it's rather like um, if you imagine the universe is a pond and you drop a pebble in that pond, then if you measure how far the, this wave that's resulted from your dropping a pebble has got to at different times as the universe is expanding, what you're actually doing by making that measurement is mapping out the expansion rate of your pond or the expansion rate of the universe. So that's the, the fundamental physical uh, process that forms these barren acoustic oscillations. Now, when we have a galaxy map, you can actually pick up this wavelength by looking at pairs of galaxies. And then statistically, you just have this excess in the number of pairs of galaxies 
separated by basically the distance that the wave has travelled to. And we are fundamentally picking up the residual of this acoustic wave and we're picking up at different times in the universe expansion. Uh, and from that we measure the accelerated expansion rate. Rita, what observations are we relying on? What are we using to look at this? The fundamental observation is the positions, uh, the three-dimensional positions of a quarter of a million galaxies. So as Will told you, these galaxies are not distributed uniformly um, in the universe. So some parts of the universe have more, some have less. And it turns out that the particular pattern that they form tells you a lot about the content of the universe. Because if the universe had a different content, you have more matter, less matter, if it had been expanding at a different rate, then you'd see a different map of galaxies. So the fundamental observation is this map. Does this map not purely tell you about the matter, though? And if it's the dark energy, if it's the force that's causing the expansion, don't we need to find some other way of looking that doesn't just look at the matter? Well, there's two ways to answer that. First of all, you're right. Um, This map tells you, I mean, to be honest, even when I'm saying I'm mapping a quarter of a million galaxies, that's only a tiny bit of matter um, in the universe. We know most of the matter in the universe is in the form of dark matter that we can't see. But by and large, these galaxies trace it. So if you see more galaxies in one part of the universe, you know there's more dark matter there. But... If you make this observation, uh, galaxies at different distances from you, you're actually looking back in time. And this happens because light takes time to travel to you from, from, from a galaxy. So if you look at a galaxy that is 2 billion light years away from you and one that is 3 billion light years away from you, by looking at how these distances, how this pattern has changed between one and the other, it tells you how, how, how much they've, they've moved from one another in that space of time. And how does this fit in with with older observations, uh, Hubble's observations where we first confirmed the universe was expanding? The results that you're getting now, do they fit with his observations or are we starting to contradict the theories that we already had? They fit very well, actually. What we're seeing is as we look in more and more detail at the expansion of the universe, we're seeing it just has a a richer and richer um, properties. It's still expanding, so Hubble got it right. And now we're digging further into that accelerated expansion to build up a full picture of this this expansion through cosmic time. And one of the key things about this this project we're talking about is that we're looking at that expansion at a time when this this dark energy, this this dominant component became important. So we're looking at a redshift of 0.57, which is about when this dark energy started to dominate about when the universe started to accelerate. And that's a key time to try and understand the universe. So if we were to look back, what would be the story of the expansion of the universe? Has it always been expanding at an accelerating rate? It sounds like we had a long period where actually it was the gravity, the matter and the dark matter that was more important and a bigger effect than the dark energy that's causing this expansion. Yes, that's correct. The the standard model for the expansion of the universe, uh, different components in the universe come to the fore at different times. So initially, actually, it's the radiation that dominates the expansion rate of the universe. That's light, and the universe is full of light, and that light initially is the dominant contribution to energy density. Then, later on, the matter becomes the dominant contribution... And that's when you start to see the um, deceleration of the universe. You start to see gravity dominating for the material. And now we're in an era 
where we think this dark energy is dominating and we're seeing an accelerated expansion. Do we predict there might be another era in the future, or is this it for the universe now? Um, <laughs> you're asking me if there's some unknown, unknown out there, and there may well be. <laughs> but how are we going to take this forward? Now that we've sort of identified where we think, or rather when we think it was that dark energy became the dominant factor, how are we going to move forward and, and understand this further? So that's a good question. So we've found a new component of the universe and we're sort of picking and prodding and trying to see how it behaves in different scenarios or at different times. The next thing is to get better measurements of these distances and try to see... We have a number of theories um, of what could explain this acceleration and what you really want to do is to find the theory that best fits the set of observations that you've made. And so the better your observations and the wider range of observations that you make, the better it is. Rita Togero, and before her, Will Percival from the University of Portsmouth. Dark energy and dark matter are subjects that inspire many questions sent into the show, and Evan Stanbury wrote in recently to ask if the presence of dark matter constantly moving through us and interacting only by gravity might be interfering with our ability to measure the universal gravitational constant, or Big G. I asked Andrew Ponson. Right, well, let's just take a step back and, and see what we're talking about, first of all. What this big G number is, is something that tells us how much gravitational force you get for a fixed amount of stuff according to gravitational laws developed by Newton and, and then Einstein. So it's, it's just a number. We've got to find a way to measure it because we can't calculate it from our theories. Um, and so you have to come up with experiments to do that. So something you might try and do is measure how quickly uh, do things fall to Earth under the force of gravity, and that would tell you the gravitational force due to the Earth. But on the other hand, we don't then know uh, what the mass of the Earth is, so that wouldn't give us any help in working out what this conversion ratio from the mass of the Earth to the gravitational force would be. In fact, it works very much the other way, that we can work out the mass of the Earth by measuring the force of gravity. So what we actually do is measure the, the gravitational effects of much, much smaller, essentially everyday objects. Those have the advantage that it's relatively easy to measure what their mass is. But, of course, the flip side of that is that it's very hard, then, to measure what their gravitational effects are. Because compared to the Earth, these everyday objects are absolutely tiny. And so the gravitational force is also absolutely tiny compared not only to the gravity of the Earth, but also to all sorts of forces that we don't normally think about. For instance, forces coming from just the fact that, that the Earth's surface is moving around, seismic activity. Even in places where you don't have earthquakes, that's actually quite significant compared to what you're trying to measure. So it's a really challenging thing to do. Nonetheless, it is possible to do it if you get a, a big mass and you move it around carefully and see what its effect is on some measuring device that you very carefully shielded away from all other forces as well as you can. It remains controversial though and pe people actually get differing answers and the, the final result is simply not very well known. But to come back to, to the original question, could this go wrong because of dark matter? And the answer is no, it couldn't really. I guess what Evan has in mind is that if 
there was a blob of dark matter gathered around the the mass that we were trying to uh, measure the force towards, then it would kind of exaggerate the effect of the force towards that and you would get the wrong value. But that would uh, suggest that dark matter would somehow be concentrated around um, these objects that we're measuring the force towards. And if our theories of dark matter are correct, it doesn't really get clumped on that scale. So although there is some coming through the room that you're doing the experiment in, it's very evenly spread out. And that means it doesn't have a net pull in any particular direction. So it shouldn't be affecting this measurement of the gravitational constant. But on a on a galactic scale, we do get clumping of dark matter. We get these dark matter halos around galaxies. Could that be having an effect? Well, certainly on galactic scales, dark matter has a huge effect. That, that's how we know that it's there, and that's how we measure its properties. It's just because when we start zooming into smaller and smaller scales, even on, say, the scale of the solar system, let alone on laboratory scales, it's so evenly spread out that it doesn't, in, in those circumstances, result in a pull in any particular direction. And that sort of brings me along to this question from Dan Wheeler. Carolyn, I'll put this one to you. He wants to know if the solar system is expanding in line with the fact that the universe appears to be expanding. Well, yes, this follows on nicely from what uh, Andrew was talking about, forces and their relative strengths. And the key thing here is that, yes, the universe is expanding, but you have to realise it's not the structures within the universe that are expanding. It's more that the separation between them is growing. You have to think of it as space is stretching and it's pushing various structures apart, further away from each other. And the force that provides that expansion, that outward push in the universe, is associated with space. And it becomes more and more important the more space there is between structures. So, in other words, it only dominates on enormous scales, the very largest scales. Now, on much smaller scales, and where here I'm talking, you know, the size of a solar system is a small scale, gravity or other forces dominate. So even though the whole universe is expanding, on the scale of certainly at atomic scale, you've got weak, strong or electromagnetic forces that are much stronger. On the scale of a solar system or a galaxy, gravity dominates. The Milky Way itself is not expanding that's held together by gravity. If two more galaxies are close enough together, gravity pulls them together, even through expanding space. And you see mergers. You even see clusters of hundreds of thousands of galaxies all bound together by gravity. So on that local scale, gravity wins. The expansion only really becomes evident on much larger scales. And I think it is quite important to reiterate the point that you've made that expansion of the universe is a property of space and very much not a property of matter. That's right. And so gravitation is associated with matter. So whether it's visible or the dark matter that Andrew was talking about and this expansion of space is associated with something called dark energy, which, again, we associate with space itself. Dominic, we've had a question that sort of expands on these ideas of expansion of space and dark energy and dark matter from Manu Golden in Johannesburg in South Africa. He's essentially saying that we are you know, a biological entity, we've evolved with a brain. Is it capable of understanding the real mysteries of the universe? There certainly are limits to what we can understand because this may sound rather obvious, but at its core, any scientific research involves doing experiments, making observations, and then forming theories around what those experiments reveal. 
And what that means is that it's very difficult for us as scientists to make concrete statements about, for example, physical conditions which are very difficult to observe or things that don't produce light which is very difficult for us to see. And this is especially a problem for astronomers when we talk about, for example, dark matter or black holes, which are objects which don't produce very much of their own light. So to take a very simple example of Newton's law of gravity, that obviously is a piece of scientific theory which is very well tested because objects that we can see in the solar system and in the galaxy obey that and have been very well observed. Of course, we know that when you take that to more extreme physical conditions, very high velocities, then you start to see more complicated behaviours. And that's when you start to need a more comprehensive theory of gravity, which is Einstein's theory of relativity. Now, if you take that to more extreme physical conditions yet, which are very difficult to observe, for example, what is it like in the centre of a black hole? That is actually an impossible question for us to answer because no light can get out at the centre of the black hole and we would be naive, I think, to think that there wasn't more physics in there beyond Einstein's theory of relativity when you get to those very extreme conditions. But we can never actually observe that environment to form those theories of what happens. And I guess this is where we rely on our ability to think mathematically in order to try and make predictions, to try and come up with theories that could explain what happens. But we will never be able to say this is definitely the case because we can't make those observations. Yes, I mean, what you can do is you can ask the question, assuming Einstein's theory of relativity holds out, even in those very extreme environments, we can then predict mathematically what would then happen. But, of course, we would expect at some point that theory is bound to break down and give way to new physics that we may never know about. Dominic Ford. There are still more of your questions to come where we'll be finding out how photons are actually produced inside a star and if it's possible for galaxies to become so distant and to be moving away so fast that they simply vanish. Get your questions in by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. Meteorites are extremely valuable to scientists. We have visited and collected samples of rock from the moon, but otherwise these lumps of space rock that fall to Earth are our only geological samples of bodies outside the Earth. But they're also highly desirable to collectors, especially those rare examples that are made from Martian rock. This has pushed the cost of meteorites up and established a global trade. Audrey Templesman is a writer based in New York City and London. She researched the meteorite trade for an article she wrote for The Naked Scientists, which you can find at thenakedscientists.com slash articles. She also met up with Chris Smith at the Natural History Museum in London. So here we are in London. We're here because it is the home of the Natural History Museum, and we're going to be uh, talking today about Tessent, which is a, a, the latest addition to the Natural History Museum's meteorite collection. When did they get the new meteorite? I believe that it arrived um, with much fanfare in February of 2012, and it is a, tr- a truly exciting addition because it is a Martian meteorite, which is very rare 
only 0.15% of meteorites that are known to science, which is about 61 out of 41,000 specimens, are from Mars. It's also notable for another reason, the price tag. <laughs> yes, uh, no one will quite disclose exactly how much the museum paid for this specimen. However, um, it has been confirmed that it well exceeded the museum's annual acquisition budget. For meteorites, or as in what they would spend in a year on everything they're going to buy? I believe it's what they would spend in a year on everything. Gosh, so they must have really wanted this. Why do they say that these meteorites are valuable for them? Well, again, this is a very rare specimen. Um, these meteorites are particularly important because what we know about space is really what happens to fall on the Earth. It's our only source of non-microscopic information. And so when a meteorite like this falls, it's uh, you know, truly exciting, and there's a real land grab for it, um, both on the part of private collectors and institutions like the Natural History Museum. Is it expensive just because it's so rare, along the lines that you said, or are there other reasons why meteorites are expensive, and, and how expensive are they? Well, to give you some idea, a Martian meteorite will often sell for around $1,000 a gram. Um, and in the case of Tessent, um, that is a 1.1 kilogram sample. So just to give you a sense of, of how much money we might be talking about here, um, it's really quite significant. And in terms of what drives that price? Well, there's sort of two, uh, two schools <laughs> that drive the price, I suppose, um, Obviously, these specimens have tremendous scientific value for us. There's a great deal that we can learn from them. But on the other side of it, since about the 1990s, we've seen a, a rise in the number of people who treat these specimens as though they were fine art, that they're collectibles. The same way you'd collect a painting or a sculpture, you can collect a meteorite. And um, because there's been growing interest um, among these private collectors, there's also been a surge in people who are selling these, these items commercially. And that is, has tremendously driven up the price um, that people will expect to pay for a rare sample. Where do you get meteorites from? I mean, obviously they come from outer space, but if I wanted to buy one, how do people get them? Technically, you can get them um, anywhere. They fall all over the Earth. They have no discrimination as to where they fall. Um, if you're a scientist, the best place would be Antarctica. Since uh, the Antarctic Treaty, which um, was established in 1959, scientists have been able to gather specimens from the area and use them for further research, and nothing in Antarctica is used for commercial gain. So this is a real trove for science. However, they, they do fall all over the world, so what happens to them when they fall uh, really depends on where you are. So, for example, if you stumble across a meteorite in Japan, you will have the right to keep it, whereas if you're renting a home in the UK and it falls right through your window, it unfortunately will belong to your landlord. So what happens to a meteorite when it falls really depends on where you are. And um, if you are interested in purchasing a meteorite and you're not a scientist, <laughs> um, you can go online. And there are any number of people selling these specimens commercially. Given that the prices of these meteorites are running at $1,000 a gram, this is in excess of the price of gold. So is it possible then that collectors are effectively speculating and driving a sort of meteorite bubble, if you like, with the hope that there will be a scientist who wants that specimen enough in the future that they will pay these grossly inflated prices for them. 
I think it's a it's a very interesting question, and I think, of course, future profits for private collectors is is you know certainly a possibility. Everyone operates by the buy cheap and up the price by the time you sell it uh, philosophy. But in the case of the Natural History Museum, the private collectors who sold it to them did it at a reduced price because they were eager for the specimen to end up in the museum, which has an, an excellent reputation and an excellent collection. Now. While it is important to acknowledge that those were the motivations behind the museum getting a price that it ultimately, with the help of a donor, could afford, it is a bit of a tricky issue to think that not all collectors are like that, and perhaps the next very special sample that falls to to Earth from Mars may not end up in the hands of the same kind of seller. So what do the collectors who are paying these really quite inflated prices, what do they say? Well, I think the the real issue that is important to acknowledge here is that, as with all stories, there are two sides. And in speaking to the collectors about the predicament that scientists and institutions like the Natural History Museum find themselves in terms of the elevating price of meteorites that often puts them in in a tricky situation as far as procuring samples that are not from Antarctica, uh, many of the of the individuals that I spoke to um, were quick to to say that. It is in part because of the interests of these private collectors that there is a demand for meteorites, and hence many more samples are currently available, both to private collectors and to scientists. Many of the collectors also sell to scientific individuals and also to institutions. And they also pointed out that a small part of the sample is often donated to science in exchange for a free appraisal by the Meteoritical Society that serves um, as sort of a badge of authenticity. So it is possible for potential buyers to go to the Meteoritical Society to look at this database and see that it is a, a sample that has been acknowledged as being of a whatever background or chemical property that they're interested in. So the two worlds are not completely in isolation from one another. And, you know, in the interest of fairness, I think it's important to point that out. However, the problem still remains that if this donor had not been able to assist the Natural History Museum, Tessent might not be in the collection. It might be sitting on someone's coffee table. Audrey Templesman talking to Chris Smith outside the Natural History Museum. There's just time for a few more of your questions. Aman Sharma wrote in to ask how photons are produced in the core of the sun. I put this to Dominic Ford. The basic process that powers the sun is that you take four hydrogen atoms. Hydrogen, of course, is one of the principal components of the universe. And you bind those hydrogen atoms together to form one helium atom, turning two of the protons into two neutrons in the process. And that helium atom is more stable than the hydrogen atoms you started with. And so you have a release of energy. And that's the process that powers almost all of the stars in the universe for most of their lives. More massive stars like Betelgeuse towards the end of their lives may get hot and dense enough to fuse helium atoms into still heavier atoms with a further release of energy. But even those stars will have spent most of their lives just turning hydrogen into helium. Now, that fusion process requires incredibly high temperatures and densities. It only takes place in the very centre of the sun, where you have a density of about 100 times the density of water, and you have a temperature of about 50 million degrees centigrade. So that energy then has to be transferred 
from the core of the sun out to the surface, and that happens by a combination of radiation transfer through the sun and heat transfer and convection. And it actually takes, of order, tens of millions of years for heat to get from the centre of the sun to the surface that we see. So, in fact, even if, by some miracle, fusion were to stop in the core of the sun, the surface would actually stay hot and stay bright for tens of millions of years before the sun started to cool down. So thank you, Dominic. Uh, moving up by, by quite a big scale, uh, we've got a question for Carolyn about the way that galaxies move. Now, Klaus Schertel wants to know if some galaxies are moving away from us so fast that the light can't get to us and that the galaxies themselves are invisible. Yes, this is certainly true, because as we were just mentioning, the universe is expanding. And in such a way that the more distant a galaxy is away from us, the faster it's moving away from us. And this is what's known as the Hubble's Law. And a logical extension of this is that there are some parts of the universe that are so far away from us that they are receding from us faster than the speed of light which means that any photon or any light signal emitted by a cosmic object in that part of the universe can never travel fast enough to outrun the intervening expansion and stretching of the space that it's crossing. And so there are portions of this universe that are outside our observable horizon. They are invisible to us. And as the universe continues to expand, this observable horizon is shrinking. And so, again, just the second part of the question is whether or not we might see galaxies winking out of existence as they cross this boundary. And yes, that's technically possible in that you can imagine for any galaxy, there will be a last point when the last photon from the galaxy that's going to make it to us billions of years in the future leaves the galaxy. And after that, it's receding too fast. Um, And so it would, if we happen to catch that last photon, it would fade and disappear from sight. But the chances are that we're looking at a galaxy at the very moment that photon reaches us is very, very slight. So it's not that we're actually seeing the galaxies disappear, but nonetheless, it's something we can infer that's happening all the time. Theoretically, I suppose, as we view more and more of the night sky with more and more acuity, we should eventually see something actually do this. Possibly, because it is going to be the very faintest and the most redshifted galaxies. or They may not even be galaxies at that point. They may be so far away and so far back in time. They haven't yet assembled to be galaxies. Whatever's out there in sort of the first few hundred million years of our universe, it's possible that, yes, we might eventually see them beginning to wink out of brightness. I still think we're a long way off those kind of observations, though. And from the last light from a galaxy to the first light of a new universe, Andy Rouse asks if it might be possible for a new Big Bang to happen within our universe. Andrew, what do you think? Well, the, the chances are no, but there's, there's, a, there's a slight possibility that you could imagine a new Big Bang happening. So to understand why that is, we need to take a step back and talk about inflation, which is a process that we think was going on in the very, very early universe, uh, a, a time when the universe was in a completely different state. There wasn't anything like recognisable matter or galaxies in it. And it was expanding what we call exponentially. That means that things are not only getting further apart, but they're doing so at an ever-increasing rate. That's a very uh, odd process, uh, and it has all sorts of weird properties. And in particular, um, we've discovered that if if you push this to high enough energies, if you make this inflationary process happen at very high energies, it 
becomes extremely hard to stop. Although you might imagine that the universe constantly expanding would mean that this energy would have to be seeping away, and so ultimately that the process would stop itself. In fact, corrections from quantum theory mean that if you have inflation happening at sufficiently high energies, that stop never actually comes about in a sort of counterintuitive way. It just doesn't happen. So we end up with this picture called eternal inflation, in which inflation through most of the universe actually carries on forever. But just occasionally in relatively small isolated regions, the quantum effects happen in in the opposite direction and force stuff down to lower energies, at which point what we call a sort of pocket universe can condense out, a universe with much more familiar laws, a universe that looks like our own. And so it's the creation of one of these pocket universes in that picture that corresponds to what we call the, the Big Bang within our own universe. Now, if that's true, and if additionally string theory is right, which would predict that each of these pocket universes would have its own version of these uh, uh, physical laws, uh, so if you, if you could somehow get into a different pocket universe, it would actually have different physical laws. If, if both of those things are right, then it might just about be possible to imagine a new Big Bang happening within our own universe. And the way this would happen is if you can push a small portion of our universe back up to those really high energy conditions of inflation, then uh, it, it would then come back down to low energy conditions and it might come back down into a different type of low energy version of physics, different from the one that we have. And uh, under certain circumstances, if that happens, uh, you can actually nucleate a new universe within our own, which then viewed from within our universe, it would appear to expand at the speed of light until it engulfs everything within our visible universe. So this would be a a bit of a disaster for uh, life as we know it would certainly uh, wipe it out. The good news is it doesn't seem very likely this would happen. You do need to get up to such immensely high energies. And it's not the kind of thing that would happen, for instance, at the Large Hadron Collider. It's something that would have to come about naturally through some very unfortunate collision of things that were accelerated by astronomical processes. The fact that it hasn't happened yet is probably fairly strong evidence that it's not suddenly going to happen. And that was Andrew Ponson. And that's all we have for this month's Naked Astronomy podcast. Thanks to Carolyn Crawford, Dominic Ford and Andrew Ponson, to Will Percival, Rita Tajero, Audrey Templesman and to Chris Smith. If you'd like to get in touch, email astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. You can also follow The Naked Scientists on Twitter, that's at Naked Scientists, or join us on Facebook, facebook.com slash thenakedscientists. Naked Astronomy is produced by me, Ben Valsler, and it comes to you from Cambridge University with support from the Science and Technology Facilities Council. Supported by the STFC, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. 